Let's talk about worship. Let me give you a couple of definitions that are not on your paper for worship. So I spent this afternoon looking at some systematic um, theologies. Big textbook, you might get in seminary, that give a definition of worship. And what I've been surprised by is that not many of the theology books actually have a definition for worship. So you go to the index, look, and see, get to the W's, works, and then you go to a Z. I mean, there's no worship there, right? A couple of, uh, a couple of them did have some definition. Here's Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem uh, wrote a lot of theologies. We've used them here. Very helpful. If you're looking for a good theology, search Wayne Grudem and uh, several good theology books. He says, <clears throat> simply put, that worship is the activity of glorifying God in His presence with our voices and our hearts. That's pretty simple, isn't it? And pretty good. Said that worship is the activity of glorifying God. We do that in His presence. We do it with our voices, with our hearts. I, was, I like that definition. Let me give you another one. Uh, worship, the word worship, when you, uh, in Greek, it's proskuneo, proskuneo is where we get prostrate. It means the activity of actually lying prostrate in front of someone. Uh, our English word comes from the two words, worth, worth, ship. So it, we, we took the word proskuneo, uh, brought it over in English, used uh, the old English, worth, ship. Uh, it's, it's, it's the worthiness of an individual to receive special honor in accordance with that worth. Did, did y'all follow me on that? So the, it's the worthiness of an individual, so we'll put God here, uh, and to receive honor that is commensurate in accordance with the worth. Another um, textbook, the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. That's a pretty good one-volume book, by the way, if you're like looking for words. Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Their definition for worship is pure adoration. The lifting up of the redeemed spirit toward God in contemplation of His holy perfection. The lifting up of the redeemed spirit toward God in contemplation of His holy perfection. I thought that was pretty good. <clears throat> Two things about worship. All, thing, all worship should be directed to God alone and mediated through Christ alone. All worship is directed to God alone, mediated through Christ alone. And then I'll just give you one more phrase I thought was good today. The worship of God is the most important of all Christian tasks. And it is the primary reason that a Christian should go to church. That is to worship God. So, so the worship of God, that is the, it is the most important of all Christian, if we're not careful, as Southern Baptists, I mean, this is sort of, we like to, we have this missionary zeal, we're evangelistic, we need to go win people to Christ, but if you're not careful, you forget that the actual most important thing you do is the worship of God. And it is the primary reason that we come and gather on Sunday morning is the worship of God. As I was looking through my library, 
I came upon this little book, published in 1910. It is uh, the Disciplines of the Church, the, what was then called the Methodist Episcopal Church, before they split completely. You know, Methodists came out of the Anglican Church, John and Charles Wesley, and uh, before they split, a, a, even now, if you know anything about their church governance, they are very similar in church governance, not necessarily in church doctrine, although both of them have gone completely liberal. But back in 1910, um, listen to some of the descriptions of what worship should look like. Think about how far we've come. Let all our services begin exactly at the time appointed. And let all our people kneel in silent prayer on entering the sanctuary. The Apostles' Creed should be recited while everyone is standing. And then prayer concluding with the Lord's Prayer repeated audibly by all, both the minister and the people, kneeling. This should be a lesson from the Old Testament, which, if from the Psalms, may be read responsibly. Then there's a lesson from the New Testament, and then there's the sermon. Then there's a prayer with all of the people kneeling, sing from the common hymnal, and then the doxology, and then the Apostles' Creed, and then the Apostolic Benediction. So there's a whole lot going on in this worship service. And so then they do a little question and answer. How shall we guard if people aren't singing in church? Well, one answer is don't sing by not singing too much at once. Seldom more than five or six verses. Something to keep in mind, John. <laughs> and how do we get people to sing? By often stopping short when the words are given out and ask the people, now, do you know what you've said? Do you sing more than you felt? John, you should try that Sunday. Just stop. Do you people know what you're singing? And then uh, the worship leader is to exhort every person in the congregation to sing so that it's not just one in ten only singing, which happens a lot. Let's talk about worship. Well, there comes Zuri. Come on down, Zuri. That's the hockey Zamanas coming in there. <laughs> Megan is due at any moment. Yeah. So y'all sit in the back, all right, Megan? <laughs> Let's go quickly through worship. You've got it on your uh, outline. Does everyone have? the handout. Some of this information we've used uh, over and over, I have, with our staff because we've been talking for the last little bit about worship. And so let's you and I just walk through this. Why do we worship? I'll give you a couple of reasons. Here's the first one. That is that God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of, of all we do and especially on Sundays when we gather together. We see that picture in Revelation chapter 5. I'll have that uh, passage up on the screen. But let me just read a little bit for you. If you go to Revelation chapter 5 and you were to read from verse 1 down to about verse 14, I'll put you right in the middle at verse 12. And this is what the elders, this is what the beings around the throne are singing and saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is what John saw, the Apostle John, when he looked into heaven, when he wrote the book of Revelation. God is worthy of our worship. Why is He worthy? Well, He's our Creator. He has redeemed us. 
Let's just say that everyone here is a Christian, so you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He is our sustainer. He's our provider. This good God is our encourager. Uh, he is our, our comforter. I'm looking out at a group of people. I know several of you have walked through some, just some difficult days. Today, four of us pastors uh, were at the hospital. Young girl having a pretty serious surgery, 14 years old. Her parents are there, all of her cousins, mom and dad, anxious about the surgery. But the mother, who's a Christian woman, was able to say, but the, the Lord has given us a real sense of, of peace. That doesn't make any sense, right, when your daughter's having this kind of surgery. So for all of those reasons and more, God is worthy of our worship. But not only that, I'll bring you down another step. God actually created us to worship. You see that in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7? The reason you were created, the purpose in life, is for us to worship. And I want to think, I, I, I'm thinking now mostly about what we do on Sunday morning, our corporate worship. I'm not talking about, you know, all of life is worship. I believe that it is, that we are to glorify God with all of our life. I'm talking about specifically Lord's Day worship. And God has created us for that. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made to worship. It's a good thing to remember, which is also a reminder for those of us that are believers that the Lord's Day was created not just as an honoring to the Lord, it's created for us. It's there for our good. And, and if you miss the Lord's Day worship, you have missed a significant reason that you actually are even alive. Right? You're created to be with God's people to worship. I'll press this a little further. I'll give you a third thing to consider. I'm going to slow down in a minute. I want to get to these first four quickly. God cares how we worship. This should be uh, rolled around and thought through in churches. That it actually does matter. To, to us as Christians, Ends don't justify means. We don't think like that. For, for us, the means matters. Not just getting a job done. It, it, we're, we're concerned with how you actually get it done. Is the process honoring to the Lord? Not just did the job get done. And we bring that idea to worship. It's not just that we gather how many people you can get there and is it well performed. But what is the... What is the content? There's a story in John chapter 4 I would call your attention to. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Let's go there and, and sit for just a moment. John chapter 4. Y'all know this story? It's um, In my Bible, it's, the editors have called it Jesus and the Samaritan woman. I always called it the woman at the well. So you know the story, right? Jesus, there at the well, and here comes this woman. You remember how many husbands she's had? She's had five husbands. Five. And the man that she is living with now 
is not her husband. And she meets Jesus and has an unlikely conversation with Jesus. He keeps steering the conversation back to her life and her soul, and she keeps derailing it. And in the midst of this conversation, I won't uh, go through the whole story, but let me just call your attention to around verse 22. And listen to what Jesus says to her. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And of course, it, it is. It came from Jesus. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father, I mean, this is something else to be worth talking about. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What a thing for Jesus to say that God the Father is actually going after people to worship Him like this. And then the verse that I'd like to talk about most, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You've got to hold those two things up. Worshippers of God the Father through Jesus the Son, we must worship in spirit and truth. So when, when I use the word spirit there, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with using the big S spirit. I don't know that that's actually the Holy Spirit. Maybe it is. I think it might be S spirit. That is the inner person, mind and emotions and will makes up our spirit, spirit and truth. I would even say with with feeling and emotion and engagement and truth. So that a worship experience has to have those two things. Jesus says we must have them. And in churches, oftentimes, you're falling over on one side or the other so that we put a really heavy emphasis. This is where I would lean if, if I were ruling the world. I would lean way over on make sure we got all the truth, the truth is right, get it squared away, everybody's doctrine is clear, and don't worry so much about the emotion. Why is everybody crying? I don't care about that. I want to have the truth right. Some people would lean on the other side and think, you know what, sometimes it's good just to... We just need to just keep on singing and experiencing the Lord and pour and just do that. Don't worry about the other. But Jesus says, worship the Father, your spirit, and truth. You see, if you have truth without emotion, you have dead orthodoxy. All right, if you have truth, so you get all of it squared away. You, you become a Pharisee. You're legalistic. You have, you have the right words. You, you know the catechism backwards and forwards. You're able to say the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer and, and the Sermon on the Mount. And you know all of those things. But if, you, if, if all you have is truth and you don't have emotion, it's, it's, it's dead, right? Now, flip that thing over. If all you have is emotion without truth, then what you've got is this, this frenzied sh- shallowness. So you might claim to know Jesus, but what you've done is you put all the weight on the experience with, without enough weight in the actual knowing who he is. And so Jesus has said, you've got to have... God cares how we worship it. It must be in spirit and truth. It must be both. It must be, 
It must be right and it must be felt. It must be biblical and it must be engaged. And that is, a, I just want to tell you as a pastor and as a leader, and I think Pastor John would attest to this, that is a hard place to lead a church. To find where is that point that engages truth and people. And especially a church like ours. You ought to stand where I'm standing sometimes on a Sunday and see the congregation and the, 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 the spectrum of people. The kind of people we got. So how do you hit the right note? And uh, that's something that has uh, baffled me as I've thought about it. And I think it has less to do with style and much more to do with our approach to it. Truth and worship. Because God does care how we worship. Let me give you something else to consider that I had not considered much about. I'm, I'm a little concerned to bring up. I brought this up in our, our staff meeting. We had our um, staff chapel last week. We talked some about worship. These are one of, the, one of the things that I've brought up, and I think it's worth talking about. I just don't want to talk much about it. And that is joy in worship. Do you guys have all those psalms listed? I can't remember if I had them listed. Okay, so I won't flip to the Bible. Um, I'll, I'll just read it off the page with you. I want you to notice something in these Psalms. Psalm 27, 6. Now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent the sacrifice, sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 33, 3. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 47, 1 and 2. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And then you go to Psalm, let me just read Psalm 66, verses 1 through 5. I didn't put it there because it was kind of long. I'll drop down Psalm 71. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. Now, if you have a Bible, go with me to Psalm 66. I got this new Bible here. It's got, see the margins? It's got wide margins, but the font is real small. It's become a little bit of an issue for me. You know this one. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemy has come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. Now, you're smart people. When I read that list of psalms to you, what do you see there that's common in all of them? It's the word shout. And I feel I am completely uncomfortable with that. I, I was raised a Presbyterian. Anybody here raised a Presbyterian? Okay. So I've got more Presbyterians than I thought. Yeah. So Presbyterian church is very quiet. Very quiet. Mostly because it's so boring, but it's very quiet. 
You read the Apostles' Creed, that's pretty good. Uh, you might sing some good songs, but the sermon is typically, it doesn't amount to much. And it's very quiet. This is a little bit of a new idea for me. But over and over, I just read you a couple. You go read a bunch of it. Over and over in the book of Psalms, you see the command to shout. Now, I, I typically you shout. Where do you shout normally? At a ball game, you shout. Uh, if you're angry, uh, you're shout, you shout. I don't know, what else do you shout for? Maybe you shout at your kids or something, I don't know. This one is shout for joy. And it's all through the Psalms. I think there is a, there's an element of worship in our church that's been missing. I'm afraid to bring it up because I'm afraid I won't be able to keep a lid on it. But I, I think that there is cause for us. What, how, is, how does this inform our approach? The body of Christ at Hickory Grove. How does this inform our approach to worship? How does this inform our posture in worship? How does this inform our... I mean, if you read these Psalms, there is this real bodily engagement in worship. How does this inform our attitude in worship? How does this inform our posture in worship? How does this inform our emotion in worship? How does this inform our concept of time in worship? Look, I, when I'm preaching at the 11 o'clock service, this is when I feel it the most. When I'm preaching at the 11 o'clock service, I, I'm, 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 this is a third time into the sermon, and so it's, it's grown. It's just it's grown. I feel like I can say some things. I got it down pat pretty good. I, and a whole lot of what goes on at 11 o'clock is off the cuff. Until I'm, I see the clock when I'm preaching. And I feel, when I'm preaching, I'm getting up close, and this is sinful on my part, but I feel like this because you're sinners and you're making me feel like this. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm running out of time when I'm getting at, when I get a little past noon, I feel like I'm running out of time. This has happened to me a couple times in, uh, when we've done the Lord's Supper, and I've felt it go over like 1210. And it's a wrong feeling because it's taking away from the emotion that you see described in the Bible. So I'm wondering if we took all of these, these psalms, and you can find them other places too. And a lot of you could go and see David dancing from the ark. Please don't bring that to me. I know that's there. Let me just deal with the shouting part right now. I think we need to think more about how we express ourselves in worship. I think that we can, um, I think if you can look back to the keyhole of history, look back, if you can look back, look back 1900s, go, go beyond the late 1800s, go back to the 1700s, late 1700s, the first great awakening has come through. And there in the south, the population is probably 50-50 black and white. But almost everyone that's black is owned, they're, they're slaves. And the slave owners are struggling with 
how to work through Christian, being a Christian and keeping slaves. So to appease their consciences, oftentimes uh, those that profess Christ have started teaching Christianity. And out of that, the very first American music was, was black spirituals. The very first genuine American music, black spiritual. Where did that come from? That came from oppressed people that have been redeemed, that learned to sing with the motion. I think it's good for us to think, how do we get just some of that? How do we think through as people that hear 2019, we live our lives, we live under pressure, we, we struggle with things. How do we have that and yet gather on a Sunday with God's people, we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and then what is it we, we give, what is, what is the gift of our mouths to the Lord in worship? I think God cares how we worship, and I think there ought to be joy in our worship. Let me press that a little further. Not just joy. You know what, y'all held me up. I'm not going to be able to do the Brian Davis tonight. I'm going to go quickly, though. How about love and worship? There are two psalms. This, this bothered me. So we're supposed to adore the Lord and worship, right? But love and worship is not just us expressing our love to God. There are two psalms, two of them. There are 150 psalms. Two psalms are written in a way that we say, I love you, Lord. Remember that little chorus, I love you, Lord. I lift my voice to worship you. Take joy, my king. What you hear? Sweet, sweet song. Here I go. Did I have that song right, by the way? Is anybody here impressed with that? I'm a little impressed right now just with that. I was able to call that up. Yeah, no, no, don't clap. Uh, in Psalm 18, verse 1, and Psalm 116, verse 1, those two psalms have a, a call for us to love the Lord. Okay? And there are hundreds. There are hundreds of references that are not telling us to love the Lord. Hundreds of references that celebrate the steadfast love that God has for us. Let me um, just give you one. Psalm 136. Do y'all have that one there? Psalm 136? Mm, I've been holding back a little bit. Carney, how you doing, babe? You look nice sitting there. Psalm 136. Let me read some of it for you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lord, lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him by who understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it keeps going on and on for 26 verse, verses over and over again. His steadfast love endures forever. We come to worship, it's not so much us telling God how much we love Him. When we come to worship, we come to celebrate the steadfast love of God that endures forever. It's poured out on you. I used to um, think when people say, well, you know, I just didn't get anything out of that. 
that you, well, you, my answer would be the typical church guy answer, well, you didn't come here to get anything, you came here to give. Worship, you should be giving to the Lord and not getting, but the truth of the matter is we did come to get. But the problem might not be that you're not getting anything, the problem might be that you're not looking to get the right thing. That it's the steadfast love that endures forever. That when we think about love and worship, it's not just we express our love to God. We come to celebrate the love that God has given us in Jesus. That's what our worship is. Love and worship. Okay, let's run to the effects of worship. The effects of worship. I um, have A through K in the effects of worship. Not just A, B, and C. A, B, C, D, yeah, all the way through. What are the effects of worship? Well, one effect is encouragement, right? Encouragement, how encouraging it is. Come to church with God's people. Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It's not just lifting up the name of Jesus there is a level of encouragement that comes with being with God's people at church on Sunday. Right? You've come, and especially if you are a single person or you have a job that just takes life from you, one of the great blessings of being a Christian is coming and joining Christian people, singing to the Lord, hearing the Bible read, praying, and being ministered to. There's encouragement. There's something else I'll uh, point out. There's also accountability. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, or one, one, I think it's fair to say, one woman sharpens another. There's accountability. That's what worship does. For, it reminds me that I don't live to myself. I live to other people. I have brothers and sisters in Christ that count on me, and I count on them. That are looking out for me, and I'm looking out for them. That when they're hurting, my job is to minister so that that might be reciprocated. Accountability. There's also a sense of community. We, we do this at varying degrees of effectiveness. I think we've got to press to this more. I think broadly speaking, um, you can find that in Acts chapter 4. Holy Spirit has fallen. The church is born. And it has this almost feel of communism. It's not communism. It's community. I think in a large scale we have community well on a Sunday morning at Hickory Grove. I think on a smaller scale, we've got to do a better job of actually being in one another's lives. I think that's done in each other's homes. In fact, I think some of the antidote for racism in the church is to eat in one another's homes. To sit down at a meal and talk. I think it happens with Christians. We gather together, genuine community. Okay, another one. What is the effect of worship? I think it's a mission. Acts 1-8, if you, if you think about the mission of the church, get Acts 1-8 and Acts 8-1 together. So Acts 1-8 is what Jesus told them, right? You'll be my disciples. Uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and of the earth. By Acts chapter 8, the church has not left Jerusalem, so God sends a persecution, drives them out into that very thing. That, that is the, the mission. Worship gives birth to mission. Two things tied together intimately. That is, 
how Sunday goes will be the engine of how evangelism works in a church. So we gather to worship. That's our purpose. But then we are to verbally share the gospel with people. Let me give you another effect of worship. This is E. When we worship, we delight in God. We delight in God. I'll get this from, from the Psalms. Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. To, to delight in God. It's important to worship, and you get filled up with worship. You are not concerned with the rest of the trash that's in the world. Your delight is in the Lord. You're not looking for it in empty promises. Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Wouldn't you like to be able to read that, say it, pray it, and believe it, and it be true? That you are so filled up with the goodness of God in your life, so aware and thankful for His mercy in your heart and forgiveness of your sin, that the the temptations of this world don't snag you like they used to. Okay. Romans 5. I I love Romans 5.5 and Romans 5.11. I think they're connected. Romans 5.5, we preached it couple of weeks ago, uh, Paul writes, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured. What a great visual. Been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who God, God has given that to us. That's the promise Jesus gave us, and he's poured himself into us. And then Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 11, I may have mentioned this Sunday. Yeah, I did. I know I did. It was, one of my, it was my last point. Uh, more than that, we also... Rejoice in God. What a great thing if you can learn to, to, re, to find your joy in God. Okay, that is, we delight in God. You can flip that coin over. <clears throat> this is F. And that is that God, we won't think about this very often, but when you are in Christ, there is a certain delight that God has in us. It's worth meditating on that. You can find that in Isaiah 62, but I just will call your attention to the verse we have here, Zephaniah. In the midst of worship, this is what the prophet said. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is a a Bible promise about our God to his people. Our, uh, Our certain, our brand of Christianity, our Protestant sort of heavy with Bible doctrine, sometimes we forget that our God is a joyful God that takes joy in his people. Are redeemed. And, and the more you can envision and think about the Zephaniah, about our good God celebrating and, and, and being joyful over his redeemed people, the more it can inform how you approach what we do as a gathered body on Sundays. That our God delights in us. Let me give you a couple more. G. I haven't been able to say that much. G. 
In worship, not only does God delight in us, in worship we draw near to God. We draw near to God. You, you know the famous passage in Hebrews. I'll just read uh, one of them. Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. How do we draw near? With a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In worship, we, we draw near to God. We've been talking lately with our worship leaders and about our church and our practices. As a Baptist church, we are born out of what was known as the Second Great Awakening. We have revivalistic approaches to worship. That is to say, in our worship service, the structure lends itself to, at the end of the sermon, we want there to be a response, and we provide an opportunity for a response. But so often, we make that opportunity so narrow they were saying, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come forward and respond. When, honestly, the best way to join our church now is not walking an aisle. The best way, most people join our, the overwhelming majority of people join our church now, go through our membership class, which is a really good way to join. That is the way, best way. I think we need to broaden our call for response at worship to give people a, a chance to come forward and and just pray in the house of the Lord with God's people, with pastors, to draw near. In, in worship, we draw near to God. But there's something else that's even more important than us drawing near to God. In worship, it's down there at H, and that is that in worship, God draws near to us. Right? I mean, and James wrote it. Um, he's real pithy. James is hard to preach because you read it and think, I mean, what can I say about that? Just read it. This is what James said, James 4, 8. <clears throat> draw near to God, draw near to God, act of worship, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It gets harsh on the back end. On the front end of that verse, though, is sort of what I want you to see is that in worship, God He's here, draws near, but, but even more importantly than that, I shouldn't say more importantly because it's the Bible too, but I think more directly. In Psalm 34, 18, uh, one of my favorite verses. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. Aren't you glad about that verse right there? And I think that's best expressed... I mean, all of us here have had sort of that, that heaviness, whether it's uh, some trauma or just grief or just depression or, or just the weight of, of being alive. And it's good to come and worship and know that in worship, God is drawn near to us, and when He does, He, he provides healing, right? He, he saves the crushed in spirit. Worship, God draws near. I'll press another one on this, in that uh, I, in worship, God actually ministers to us in, in ways that I can't. So you take, um, if on, on Sunday, 
between the two places, several thousand people with all kinds of issues. Everybody's got them. All God's children got an issue. Come to the church on Sunday, and there they said, expect me to say something that's going to solve it. And that's why I, part of the reason I do expositional preaching, because I really am not very imaginative, and I don't know what to tell you about your problem, so let's read the Bible and trust that God's word, right, is going to, because the text says, um, Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. People need to come to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help me in my time of need. What a beautiful passage. That I can trust that God himself through the Holy Spirit will take his word and apply it to people's hearts in ways that I can never do. Because it's, it, it's God that ministers to us in worship. There's something else happens in worship. I'll, I'll have two more and I'll close it. Number J. In worship, unbelievers know they are in God's presence. If you ever read the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians especially, there Paul is writing to a, a church that's having all kind of difficulty and uh, all kind of terrible things going on in that church. By the time he gets to the end of the letter, he's given some instructions on what worship ought to look like. Um, and he's speaking about um, glossolalia, spe- speaking in a, in a tongue. And he's giving some warnings about speaking in tongues. And he says that instead of that, there should be, the, there should be, a pro- there should be preaching, prophecy. There should, should, should be the Bible. Listen to what he says here. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders, this is people, people that are not Christians, unbelievers, outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? And the answer to that is yes, they will say that. But, but, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider comes in, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So when we worship the Lord in spirit and truth, and open the Bible, preach it, it's God's word speaking, the Holy Spirit applying, then God does things that we, don't have to, that we can't do. We're not manipulating people, we're not trying to tell people how terrible they are. We let the word work, and... Unbelievers are brought to conviction. Our, our approach to evangelism on a Sunday morning is doxological evangelism. Doxological evangelism. That is evangelism through worship. So when, when we worship on Sunday morning, our eye is not on how do we best get unbelievers here, make them feel comfortable, and ease them into Christianity. That, that is not what we do. Our approach is we've gathered on Sunday and the purpose is to lift up the name of Jesus. God's people have gathered to worship. If an outsider comes in, our guarantee is that he hears the Bible, he or she hears the Bible, and the Holy Spirit will take that and drive it into their hearts. And according to what the text says, then that person comes to faith in Jesus. That's how now evangelism outside of Sunday works differently than what it does on Sunday. Worship, one of the effects is that unbelievers... Know that they are in God's presence. Here's the last one. What is the effect of worship? I didn't know whether or not to include this one, so I just stuck it here. One of the effects of worship is that the Lord's enemies flee. 
I think that's good to remember that. I spoke to the choir uh, not too long ago, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before. And I used this passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 21. It's Jehoshaphat and the choir. They're going to, sing, uh, going to uh, fight a battle, and instead of using an army, he sends the choir out in front, which is a really good idea. Put the choir out there. Listen to the passage. And when he, when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and to praise Him in holy attire as they went before the army and to say, Give thanks to the Lord, for His steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise the Lord, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, and Moab, and Mount Seir. And all those men that had come against Judah, so that they were routed. How were they routed? They were routed through worship. All of this to say tonight is, I think we need to, as a church, as God's people, keep thinking through how do we best honor Christ and worship? How do we grow as Christians and worship? And what is your contribution? You. What is your contribution to how worship goes on the Lord's Day at the church that God has called you to? I hope you'll think about that come Sunday, ready to worship. You join me as we pray. Father, thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that fills us. We thank you that worship is not a burden, but a joy. Thank you that you heal us, that you lift our drooping hands and hearts up, that in worship we can have joy because of your steadfast love that endures forever. Father, I pray that that might be on our minds and hearts as we individually worship you during the week, in times of devotion, that you wake us up tomorrow and, and enough time to spend time with you, and then bring us here on Sunday ready to give and receive in the act of worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Thanks, everybody. Good night.